Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. You know, it's not often you get a chance to talk to a premier that's just out of office to talk about his policies and the reasons behind those policies. We had that chance with uh, Steve McNeil. Very interesting conversation. We talked about, uh, about a lot of things that uh, that happened under his watch and some of the things uh, that were controversial. Uh, but, you know, uh, one of the things he told me, and he didn't tell us in this uh, this. Uh, podcast but he said uh, his philosophy was that he didn't get elected he got elected to govern not to govern to get elected and i think that some of the decisions that he made uh, over the course of his time as premier reinforced that philosophy he took some really hard decisions on closing hospitals in cape breton he closed boat harbor and the pulp mill and picked county these are really you know, costly political decisions cost them support in both cases. And uh, yet he, he, he did what he thought was right. He even told us that he had to look himself in the mirror and judge how he performed as premier. So I would say he's a slightly different politician than normal, wouldn't you? Absolutely. The other big one he talked, spent a lot of time in our conversation was the labor relations and, and trying to bring what, what he would call sanity back into that process of negotiation with unions and over the delivery of public services. So yeah, this is a very interesting conversation for folks that want to understand how decisions gets made and how premiers think it th- think of things. Even his his comment around why he left probably a little earlier than maybe other par- par- uh, premiers might have, you know, just around his commitment to not stay in power too long. So I think there's a lot of really meaty and good content here for folks that uh, that care about these things. Yeah, and he reminded me about a couple of other things that that they this his government did. They they brought in legislation, the first in North America, for what is called presumed consent for organ donation, which means unless you decide not to donate, your you know your organs are going to be harvested for the good of others. The, you know, first in North America, that you know that was an important piece of legislation that nobody will remember probably, but probably has already saved. Uh, a few lives and we'll save a lot more over time. So, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, he's involved in uh, over his time. I think they were involved with getting pharmacists uh, to do more in the healthcare. I think his government were maybe the first to promote uh, the idea of nurse practitioners. And of course, that big decision of healthcare in, in Cape Breton, where he closed two old aging hospitals and, you know, put new collaborative health centers in there. I think it was a model for what needs to happen right across the region. Honestly, that was very brave. Yeah, so a, a, a really terrific conversation with uh, somebody who's made a big difference. And uh, I think uh, our listeners will enjoy listening to this. Yeah, so, absolutely, Don. Just, just one yeah, last yeah, thing, though. I, I do you think you've got, you've got another Nova Scotia politician and stakeholder on the record saying SMRs are a good idea. I hope the SMR companies in New Brunswick have you on the payroll because if we – ever get SMRs to take off here in New Brunswick and around the region, uh, you know, it is important to get these guys on the record. And he's clear that he thinks that nuclear power should be on the table for Nova Scotia. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a, that's an important uh, part of this discussion when we talk about the 2050 conversation. Yes, it is. And thanks for bringing that up because, uh, you know, that's going to be a topic I think we're going to be talking about for quite some time. So without further ado, here's our conversation with the former premier of Nova Scotia, Stephen McNeil. We are pleased to be joined on this episode of the Insights Podcast by the Honorable Stephen McNeil, the former Premier of Nova Scotia, now the Strategic Business Advisor with Cox & Palmer, one of the biggest law firms in Atlantic Canada. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. It's been nearly two years since you stepped down as Premier of Nova Scotia. You are now the Strategic Business Advisor with Cox & Palmer, the law firm. Can you tell us a little bit about this current role uh, and why you took the role? Yeah, uh, so here uh, with the current list of uh, clients that they would have at the firm, my job is really to support them with any questions they may have around business development, whether it's on the export file, working outside of uh, Nova Scotia, Atlantic Canada, or uh, some may have questions about how to deal uh, with governments at all levels and bureaucracies and uh, give them advice with that. I am not a I'm not a government relations guy, nor do nor am I a lobbyist. I don't do one of those. My advice is directly with 
clients here. And then, of course, with my own network of people that are calling looking for some advice, I hope to, I hope to introduce them to the firm as well. So as Premier, you won two majority governments and were in a good position to win a third majority, something that has only been done one other time in the last 50 years in Nova Scotia. Why did you decide to leave when you did? Oh, it was time. I'd been elected a long time, 17 years, but I've always fundamentally believed uh, all governments have a shelf life. You have a window to do what you can do. And for me, regardless of political stripe, governments eventually become arrogant. Uh, typically, if you follow it, it would be a third or fourth year. Uh, sorry, third or fourth term. And in, and for me, you know, I always have asked this question, what would Atlanta Canada look like if you know, Richard Hatfield had served two terms or John Buchanan or Joey Smallwood had all served a couple of terms and and, and uh, allowed someone else uh, to take over the helm and, and to do, move the province forward. And if you come in with an agenda, if you come in with ideas about how to move the province, eight years is a long time and you can you should be able to implement them. If they haven't been implemented by then, uh, it's probably not going to happen. Your former Frank, Premier of New Brunswick, Frank McKenna, had a similar philosophy. He left uh, after 10 years. But do you miss politics? I miss it every day. I love the job. I was enjoying it even then. But I, I knew early on it wasn't a lifelong, it's not my job. It's uh, I had the privilege to hold the office. And uh, so I knew it was time to go. But yeah, I miss it a lot. It's a, uh, it's a job where you can impact uh, people's lives uh, in a very positive way. We understand that you had decided to leave earlier, but the pandemic changed your plans. Uh, why did you postpone your decision to leave? Well, I, we need it. Uh, um, I think Nova Scotians needed consistency and leadership. Uh, the relationship that Dr. Strang and I had started to develop that was at the front end of the pandemic. We didn't know each other. I didn't, other than, you know, uh, through reputation, I didn't know Dr. Strang uh, until uh, about a week before our first case. Um, so it was important to provide that stability uh, for, for Nova Scotians. And uh, that's why I chose to stay. Uh, and then in August of that year, we saw, uh, you know, a window that if I didn't go, then I was going to be facing another term. I recently read the book about you by Dan Legere called uh, Principles and Politics. I assume you've read the book, uh, Stephen. Uh, what are your overall impressions of the book? Is there anything in the book that needs to be corrected? Uh, I have read the book. Uh, it was unauthorized, so I always have to tell people that. Um, you know, there were, I, I, I'm not going to uh, nitpick on the part. He, he captured, I think, the essence in many ways of what our government was trying to do, what I was trying to do, um, uh, and, and put it in the context of uh, where we were at the time. Um, you know, so I, I was, uh, I, I mean, uh, I think he's captured a, a pretty good sense of what, what our government was trying to accomplish in that period of time. I thought he did a pretty good job of explaining kind of the rationale behind some of your uh, decisions, Stephen, especially with regard to uh, uh, taking on um, the labor uh, unions on on trying to get a more integrated negotiation platform, I guess. We'll come to that a, a little bit later. Um, I, I wrote a column not long after you resigned in which I called you the most consequential premier during at least my time in the polling business over 40 years. You know, uh, I didn't do that lightly. And um, uh, you had a lot of things. You did a lot of brave things while you were premier, in my opinion. But what would you consider to be your proudest accomplishment during your time as premier? Oh, I, it's, this is always a tough question because there are things that fundamentally to my core mattered a great deal. The Home for Colored Children, uh, presumed consent, organ donation, uh, uh, you know, keeping our word around the issue of Boat Harbor were important ones that were, were kind of, I, I, I think, uh, shows a bit of the soul of our government. Um, um, I think when you look externally outside, uh, we tried to put Nova Scotia on the international map, uh, not just in China. We were uh, where we were a lot, uh, trying to make sure that we were opening doors for businesses. Uh, we did the same thing in uh, in Europe. Uh, we we would participate often in in a, a pan Canadian approach, but for us, it, it, we weren't waiting for Canada or the rest of the provinces to join us. Uh, we felt that we had an opportunity to put. 
our economy, what the things that we have to offer here on the map. Uh, and I felt it was my role as the premier and uh, some of our economic ministers to be out promoting connecting with that. Uh, I think if you go from 2013 to when we left in 21, you would have seen a substantially different looking economy in Nova Scotia. You would have seen, and I think you would have seen a level of confidence in in uh, in the business community and about being able to compete uh, internationally. And I, I think that's one of those things uh, that will have a lasting legacy for uh, this current government and future government. That's interesting. Those are those are some of the things that uh, I wouldn't have thought of. I thought I would have thought you might have mentioned others, but we'll come back to some of those others, I guess. What do you wish you might have done differently, Stephen? Oh, I, w- I wish I could have found uh, a labor piece a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 but you realize uh, not everyone shares the same view, or quite frankly not necessarily uh, structurally looking at the same outcomes. Uh, you know, it's, it's inherent in, a, in an organization of any kind. The leaders of those organizations uh, respond to their membership, and that's it. In my case, I had to respond to what was the future of the province, which meant all of us. Uh, so, you know, they were probably, uh, there probably wasn't any other way to be able to do it, but I, was, I would have liked to have gotten labor peace uh, a, little, a little easier for sure. Healthcare is a thorny file. It is. It was in your government. It is with the current government. And you, you were elected on a promise that everyone would have their own family doctor. Do you regret or 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 or, or um, think about that position or that promise that you made? Yeah, I, I, I have thought about it a lot. To be honest with you, it's not that I regret it um, at all. I think I think the person has, whoever has the privilege of the premier, that should be their aspiration in terms of trying to achieve uh primary care access uh, but the reality of it is uh we're in um a, an ever-changing delivery model uh where uh doctors want to practice differently uh, nurse practitioner scope practice um uh, i think more uh, uh, aspiring to a more of the collaborative care approach where you have a whole host of healthcare teams uh and allowing uh individuals to practice their full scope of training. One of the things that I've said many times in the healthcare sector, uh, it is uh, an organization full of highly educated, highly professional people who don't seem to respect each other's scope of practice. (laughs) Whenever we say we're going to adjust something, someone feels like we're taking it from them. Uh, Exactly the thing about uh, pharmacists doing flu shots. Uh, we now think that's just automatic. Well, when we started that conversation, it wasn't automatic. But people were feeling we were taking something from physicians. Uh, well, that's, that wasn't the case. And in my view, uh, very few of us should be in a doctor's office getting a flu shot. Uh, they should be delivered by uh, nurse practitioners, should be delivered by pharmacists. And I think when you look at the scope of delivery of healthcare, that's the kind of stuff that will allow us uh, to allow our practitioners to practice the way they want to but also to make sure that we get access to primary care. Uh, you know, and I'm a big believer in some cases, uh, you know, we need a social worker as part of that team. Uh, they need support. This is not, uh, you know, Don and I are from, uh, he, he thinks he's from a big family, but I'm from a big family. So uh, we have <laughs> a, you, you're, in, and you were often, in my case, you were living in the community where your network of family and friends were. So they often provided you with, support, even if you were a young parent, uh, you know, you were lucky with it. Well, today's that's not, you know, many of our families are spread all over the world. Uh, and, and for some young people who become parents early, having that support of a, of a, of a social worker, uh, a public health nurse uh, to provide some of the things that we, uh, we think are natural uh, and when we become parents, uh, I think is an important part of this whole conversation and how do we provide that uh, level of, you know, the continuum of the services that will, that will in, end up determining your health outcomes, uh, which is a big part of that. So I wanted to just follow up a little bit on that issue. So are you saying that the, the old days of everybody, every Nova Scotian having their own family doctor are over and we're going to have to move to more of this sort of collaborative approach where you might have uh, a bunch of different doctors that have access to your health files 
uh, but that you have this broader group, as you said, social workers, but also other other uh, other care professionals in sort of a network approach. So that you can do either or. So you could function in terms of a collaborative care center where you have multiple physicians who are in there, plus a bunch of support staff. Or it could be a physician who is running, a, who also has the support of a family practice nurse or or a, a, a built a dietitian, for example, the physician that I the two would have a family practice nurse. Uh, they often have uh, physicians who are in uh, doing rotations uh, and they would have access to a nurse practitioner. So depending on what it is, who you might see, you you would fall under probably a physician uh, in either model. But that might not be the person that you would see at the end of the day. You might when you get called in, they might say, OK, you might need to go see, uh, you know, the, 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 the family practice nurse or. Uh, you know, so that's one way of the delivery. And I also think, how do you, what, I think we also have to look out in community. Like, uh, I, I go back to pharmacists again. Um, you know, I've, I have a relative who's a pharmacist. I don't call my GP for advice on drug interactions or the importance of this. I, I, I go see the pharmacist, uh, you know, uh, which I think, uh, you know, we need to be, we need to be willing and open to have those types of, of services being provided. Um, you know, COVID provided us virtual care that uh, we were experiencing. If COVID hadn't happened, uh, we'd still be debating on how we're going to fund that. Uh, when every other aspect of our life has included technology, except healthcare, when it comes to how we receive access to uh, primary care. You know, uh, I go back to my physician who happens to be a friend at the same time. So if I had blood work, I would always get a message. I don't need to see you. You're good to go, or I need to see you. In the old days, though, that would I'd go to the blood work, then I'd go back and get, well, that you know, and that, an extra visit. It's it, it's touch into my productivity. I don't necessarily at the time I wasn't working in the community where my physician was or where I lived. I was working elsewhere. So all of those changes not only provide it and and will provide a better way for me to receive primary care, but it also allows me to 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 continue to live and be productive and do what I need to do in in, in an ever changing community and economy. I just want to follow up on the healthcare a little bit. Um, you know, for a long time, I thought that uh, we had, we had too many hospitals uh, in Nova Scotia, um, some of which were very hard to staff. We had, we certainly had a lot of emergency rooms. I forget what the count was 40, maybe something like that. And real difficulty keeping a lot of them open, especially in smaller communities. And um, and yet, and then you went and did something which I considered one of the most courageous things I've seen a premier do. Do you went and you decided to close two aging hospitals in the Sydney area and replace them with two new collaborative health centers, uh, reinvest in modernizing the emergency rooms of the two remaining hospitals, and then create an additional hundred long-term beds. You knew that this decision was going to cost you politically in, in Cape Breton. And I saw that support slip in our polling, frankly. I knew that that happened. It, you, yet you proceeded anyway. Why did you make this decision? And, and really, is this the prototype of the health reform that is needed province-wide? Uh, we proceeded because it was the right thing for us to do. Uh, nowhere else in Canada could you find uh, four emergency rooms that close together. Uh, uh, and the only reason they were functioning, uh, really, because no one wanted to take the political uh, hit to, to do them. And we were also, these were aging facilities, uh, we, hard to staff, hard to get people to work in them. And quite frankly, it was delivering a model that, of healthcare that was, it was, you know, the deliver the model that my grandparents were living in. This is not the new, uh, the, the new way people were delivering. I, I tell this story uh, many times. I wasn't elected very long as premier, and I get a call that uh, one of the services we were providing in Glace Bay was obstetrics. Uh, and one of my colleagues had said, as long as he was elected, we were going to be delivering babies in Glace Bay. So I had to call him into my office, and I said, you know, <laughs> you remember that story? Yeah, well. We're going to have to catch up to the women of Glace Bay. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, I said, nine of the 10 babies are being born at the regional hospital because you want to know why? Because there's a physician who delivers babies there all the time. And there's a, and there's a physician there who will care for the baby. 
So why would you want to put your wife or have the women of Glace Bay to go to a hospital where the person delivers one every three months? So, and they're just down, they're making that decision for us. Uh, so it, to me, it was fundamentally the right thing to do. Um, I think if you look, it's happening across the province in some ways, it's happening differently in different communities. I'm less of the belief that, and I stopped thinking about the buildings a long time ago in one sense. What needs to be focused on is what is the service we're delivering in what community? So each of us deserve, and it should be a right, to have access to primary care near where we live. But when we start looking at specialty services and we start looking at, uh, to me, we're a population of over a million people now. I always say from stem to stern, we're eight hours from Yarmouth to Sydney. Uh, we can have great centers of excellence. Um, and they don't all have to be in Halifax. Uh, New Glasgow has a great or, had a great ortho uh, team that was uh, doing tremendous work. Uh, you see that. And then you go, in my view, once you come down from that, uh, to go back to the glaze space issue, we moved obstetrics, but we put a dialysis unit in that facility because because that's what that community required, and that area required more access to dialysis. Sadly, uh, and we're seeing that service, the requirement of that service grow. And as I'm sure you're well aware, if you know anyone on it, it, you know it's three times a week. You're you're literally married to the machine. Uh, and, and if you have to travel a great distances, that type of service can, can, can drain you even just to travel. So looking at how you provide those services in a different way is the way we kept looking at it. I, I listen by, we weren't finished. I think Cumberland County is one where, uh, I think the regional hospital, uh, ER needed to be doubled. Uh, we closed a hospital in Parsboro, uh, uh, attached a clinic to, uh, a long-term care facility, and we put uh, two observation, two or three observation beds in that unit. So that was they were there, so uh, to deliver service in the way. So if, if you lived in Parsboro and your physician, uh, sorry, Pugwash, not Parsboro, Pugwash, if your physician there uh, thought that you were a COPD, COP patient, and they wanted to look at you over overnight, they could put you in an observation bed. But if you had something other than them observing you, you were, you are going to the regional. And, and that is the kind of new delivery that I think will have to happen across the province to me in order to make, uh, it, it's, it's, it's also, we have to get away from, which never will, because it's a political conversation uh, of what happens, but it's also, it's also the quality of care we should be expecting for ourselves. Uh, this idea that, you know, we're going to have hospitals that can deliver everything like we used to. Uh, it, it's just not the same. It, we're, we're, we're denying ourselves uh, the high level of quality care that is out there. Uh, and I think that's why we need to continue to support uh, the infrastructure uh, in, in, in a way that when we need those serious uh, health interventions, we have a place that has all the modern equipment, uh, uh, the technology. We have highly trained, skilled staff. And in communities where we live, where access to primary care, we can bolster that and support that uh, without uh, without needing it to be attached to a, an emergency room. Stephen, I always thought that you know the problem that uh, politicians made on the healthcare file. I think you you probably were had the same problem as Tim Houston has. Is that like you know you have to redefine what uh, primary care is. It's not the old, you know, you have your own doctor necessarily, but but you have access to a doctor when you need it. And, you know, one of the things that I that I see in the States, which I think we should adopt here at least, is, you know, they kind of have sort of three levels of care. They 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 have the family practices. Usually they all they all practice seems down there in groups. Then they have urgent care which is one step before emergency care. And what they do is they, they, they triage so that you no know, everybody doesn't end up in the emergency rooms. And of course, so many people not having a doctor, that's why they, the, the emergency rooms are so, so full. But you know, it gets back down to kind of re-educating the population about what, what is a reasonable expectation in terms of getting access to primary care. It's a really big problem. And people are still stuck on the old model. 
You know, they still well, think, right? And and that's why uh, when 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 either Premier Houston or you say everybody has their own doctor, it's you know that 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 causes a lot of political stress because you can't really deliver on that promise, right? No, and I think to go back to to David's my conversation, I think that I think what you you will be looking at and you are looking at uh, um, a new delivery model. It will have to be. But you, you, you also, uh, I'll take you back when I first got elected in, in 2003, I, ironically, I, I, I ran in 99 and lost and I won my, and I won my seat in 2003 because of healthcare. <laughs> uh, John Hamm's government did some activity down in, in uh, the Valley. Uh, Leo Glavine, myself and Junior Terrio got elected in a row uh, because of the impact on the local hospital. Um, but but you're, you were also the thing that the bigger question, and this is where it becomes real challenging for government. Uh, you know, if I had said in 2003, nurse practitioners are an important part of, of, of delivery primary care, I would have had doctors down my throat because right. they, you know, in, their, in some of their minds, I don't want to put them all, but in some of their minds, they believe nurse practitioners are taking the easy work away from them, that they, mm-hmm. they the billing model was how many people I saw. And all of those things. Right. So you start looking, you know, you go back to 2003 uh, during uh, uh, the second term of Dr. Ham, or you go into, and we started moving the training of uh, LPNs, licensed practical nurses. We changed it now where they're actually able to deliver uh, uh, me- medications and all of that. So if you look, we, we changed that delivery almost to the level of where they were the old RNs that we used to train at the VG, but we haven't changed, we haven't changed accepting more of them into the system. In my view, that's part of this conversation. Is, and it, it really it really becomes, yes, government has, it's, it always ends up on the, on the desk of the premier. Uh, but in order for really transformational system change, the people in it have to be willing and wanting to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means looking at how do we deliver services differently? What role... Uh, does a nurse practice? What role? I'll go back to a pharmacist. What what role uh, do, do do dietitians play? Uh, you know, and and whether I you see your doctor every time to me is is less important than it is that when you need access to primary care, we're we're putting you in front of the right person, and we need to get people's mindset changed from the fact that that doesn't have to be somebody who's an MD. You know, and that's part of the problem, especially in, you know, I'm a rural, I was a rural MLA, which is an aging population uh, there. Uh, they're used to that. They're used to having only ever seen uh, it was their doctor. And if their doctor said, you know, I don't like that guy, don't vote for him. They weren't voting for me. I was, <laughs> <laughs> they had more power than I ever did. Uh, uh, but you know what I mean? It's, and it is changing. And I, but I do, I do think that is shifting. I think it's definitely changing for our kids, uh, and I. But the system doesn't move easily. Uh, you, we go back and we talked about what we did in Cape Breton. Well, in order to do that, we had to double the emergency room in, in at the regional. We had to increase cancer care capacity at the regional, and we had to make changes in Glace Bay. So doing those other two without. You know, doing the two in in Northside and, and New Waterford without the other two, we would have been failing ourselves and everyone. Well, it's the same thing in in the delivery of the service. If if you're taking away, if if our idea is that we want people to recuperate at home, well, we need to invest in home care before we close hospital beds. We need to make sure that we have that infrastructure in place uh, to be able to deliver. And we need people in the system to be able to understand and fully appreciate where we're headed. So they don't want to put the brakes on halfway through or when they say we built up this home care system uh, that can be the envy of places. Well, that's great, but don't close the beds now. We, we want them both. Right. Right. So you got to have a transformation and, and it requires everyone. And I can tell you, healthcare is a pretty personal thing for uh, for individuals and uh, uh, it gets very emotional. That's a great discussion because, uh, you know, it's an ongoing challenge for sure. Uh, another uh, decision that I thought was very, well, very courageous was the decision to close Northern Pulp in January of 2020. Again, you knew that this decision was going to co- cost you uh, political support. 
not just in the Pinto area, but, you know, for the forestry industry people across the province, yet you decided to go ahead and, and close that mill. Uh, tell us about that decision, because that's, 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 that's a really hard one. So uh, you were right. It was it was going to impact uh, people all across the province. I, as I said earlier, I'm from a rural riding. I would have, uh, you know, I knew lots of people. I would have either been in school with or known that would have been working in the woods. Their livelihood would have come from uh, in, in some form or another uh, from their land. Um, but when we came and we looked at the mill um, and we we saw what was happening, um, and in our view. Uh, I don't think it was acceptable in the 60s, but apparently it was, uh, that it was okay to dilute to pollute. Uh, the idea wasn't that we there weren't toxins or that we weren't going to clean them up. The question would be is how much water do we have to add to them before they would meet a certain standard that we would pump them out, uh, out into, uh, into a community. And to be honest with you, uh, Boat Harbor was acceptable and, uh, because it was next to an Aboriginal community. Uh, in the vines of many people when they started this conversation. It's like when we used to cite our dumps next to African Nova Scotia communities. Well, we know better, and we should know better today, and we as a government uh, knew better. Uh, we had the support of Pictou Landing to give this company five years to uh, put in what is a new, modern effluent treatment plant because it does they do exist. They're around the world. Pulp and paper plants happen or, or everywhere. Uh, and we gave them what we believed was enough time. Uh, uh, and to be honest with you, they were no closer to they were no closer to cleaning to meeting the, the demand of a new effluent treatment center in 2020 than they were in 2015. Uh, and so uh, it, it felt an awful lot of times uh, that people felt the jobs were going to outweigh what we believed was the right thing to do. And, and uh, it, it wasn't, we, we weren't being dismissive of those jobs at all. As a matter of fact, we tried to do the best we could to make it work. Um, but it wasn't going to be the only thing we considered. Uh, and the environment mattered and uh, pick the landing mattered. And uh, cleaning up Boat Harbor was, uh, to me, uh, an important signal uh, to that community, to the Aboriginal community, but I think to broader citizens in the province. Yes, we need economic development, and I do believe this industry can coexist, uh, but it has to meet today's standards of, of uh, the environmental stewardship that we as a community expect. So Northern Pulp is continuing to advocate for the opportunity to restart that mill with a proposed new treatment plan, currently, I believe, under review by the province. The company has actually sued the province for prematurely closing the plant and uh, hopes to use the settlement money to help fund the restart plan. Do you, uh, are you optimistic? Do you think there's a real possibility that that, that, that uh, uh, pulp mill could get uh, restarted anytime soon? Well, I'm not as close to it, obviously, now. But it, listen, pulp mills exist all over the world. Uh, you know, there's no, you know, obviously there's a bit of differences depending on what types and, uh, sure, it can, I, I believe it can exist, but it will require an investment and a serious understanding, uh, that, uh, the treatment, uh, facility will have to meet the modern standard. Uh, you can't continue to, as I say, dilute to pollute. It's just not, uh, a way to do, uh, a way to move forward. Um, I will tell you that I think those in the broader sense of the community who have had been living without that mill now for a number of years, <laughs> you're going to really have to, not only are you going to have to worry about making sure and being committed to the treatment of the effluent, but you're also going to be focused on the quality of the air, uh, which people have seen quite a difference. So another important, <clears throat> excuse me, another important initiative by your government in your first term was to address the structural problem with public contracts in the province. Why was the method of contract negotiation harming the province's finances, and what were you able to achieve? Well, it was, you know, I, in 2013 when I got elected, uh, I would say to people, the person in the healthcare system was caring for us when we were dying, had the right to strike no matter what, and the person who registered my card didn't. Uh, 
and I thought to myself, well, which one of those two services do I need the most? And 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 then when you go back into into uh, you end up in a, a in healthcare in this province, we had like fifty to sixty. I think it was fifty four, fifty five different bargaining units. So we were in a constant negotiation around healthcare. So and and every time we would get to the you know a, a labor disruption or a labor dispute governments would have to prepare for the worst, which is a full-on walkout. And and unions would say to you, well, you know we're not going to do that. You know we're not going to leave your dying parent or unit. And I said, well, I would hope not, but I have to prepare as if you are. That's the difference. You you Because I have nothing to prevent you from doing it. You could decide to do it tomorrow morning, and I can't stop you. There's no essential service component. There's nothing in, the, in, in Nova Scotia. We were the only place... Uh, without it, so we went through the process of really saying, "Okay, you, every worker has a right to either binding arbitration or the right to strike." I was, I, I was not crazy about binding arbitration because I, I, an arbitrator never takes into account the ability of government to pay, um, and particularly in small markets, uh, because they want to work, they want a future job, so they want to be an arbitrator of future case. Uh, so they never take in the ability for government to pay. So we structured it in a way that. We put in the central service legislation that was negotiated with unions, and then we reduced our bargaining units down to uh, four uh, four collective units where we put. Um, and the original plan was to have, uh, you know, the nurses union do one, uh, NSGU do one, QP Unifor each do one of the four. Uh, they felt that uh, they wanted to keep their members and what they would do is each one would lead that negotiation. So the nurses union leads the nursing negotiations, but NSGEU was at the table because they represent some of those nurses today. Uh, so it, it provided us with the ability to go into a conversation uh, with, I, it, 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 it's, I don't want to kid you, it still would be difficult if they walked off the job with, with no, uh, uh, with, with, with essential service, it would be reduced. There's no question, but at least government has some level of assurance what will be done, how much you know, where what services will be there, have to be there, the level of that service, uh, and then as you work your way through that, uh, uh, collect. And they couldn't quite honestly bring the system to the knees. That's what happens. Every happened. If you historically look at this, John Ham tried it in 2000. Uh, uh, the nurses union brought into brought their government to their knees, and they quickly changed from trying to get control of the finances to where they went through that process of of working in that. You know, we were we also wanted to say I, I, my original goal was <laughs> tell you how naive not naive I am here because I had originally put on the table three zeros and two ones. Uh, most people don't recognize. Of the partners at all negotiating tables, I was the only one who moved. We had two zeros, one and one and a half, and we did four, and then we did eight-year deals. So the myth out there is that we weren't negotiating. Well, we actually did negotiate. We and and we accepted certain things. It's not because if I had my way, I'd have had three zeros. Because here's the problem that people were. You know, there's a belief out there that government could just spend money in government services, and somehow the economy is going to run. Well, the economy doesn't run. And that's what's happened. That's been forever thus in this province. Every bit of government money, tax money, would go towards delivering public service. And you had no ability, no ability to invest in other parts of the economy. And, and I don't mean government lending people money. I mean, how do I make sure I get the workforce trained? Where's incentives to build a sector development? How do you make sure that we're leveling, you know, if we're going to do something in the, in the wine industry, for example, putting more grapes in the ground, we don't decide that, you know, one winery is going to get it over another. We create an environment where if they've got the money to bid in, we'll support the process. And we're not picking one winery over another. Well, that's true in the ocean tech. That's, tr that's true in many other parts of our economy, the role government can play. But without any money, how do you do it? Like you, there was, you know, and, and, and this idea that, you know, we were getting older and our kids were never seeing a future for themselves because we, we didn't have an economy they wanted to be in. They, we weren't giving them the economy. So we, we had to go in and, and try to control the public sector costs. And by the way, we, we weren't taking from them. We were just asking them to take less. And that is an important piece there that because 
if, if, if it all goes to them, then what do I have left to invest in graduate opportunities? How do I invest? How do we buy the uh, uh, Coast Guard site uh, on the waterfront to, that now hosts Cove? Uh, how do we invest in rents down at, uh, at, at um, uh, 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 you'll help me here. You'll help me at the, uh, not Cove, but uh, Volta. Uh, you know, we, we, province was supporting that space, but only in the sense that we were able to do the, the, the operations of those spaces were being done by the, by the individual sectors. It wasn't being done by government. We were supporting it and not one particular business. We were supporting the, the, the culture around trying to let that grow. Um, and, and, you know, in, in 2013, we were on the back end of a three-year agreement signed by the previous government with labor, which was a 7.5% uh, in, in bedded cost in the government, which was $500 million in the delivery of services. The economy, uh, the economy, uh, sorry, the economy grew by 500. Those costs were 700 million into the economy. So we were 200 million in the hole before we started. It, it just, these are things that uh, nowhere else in the, would it be acceptable. And governments, uh, you know, not I'm not taking this as a as something that we were all that special in all this, but but I was asked to do the job and I was going to do it. And 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 when we got there. Uh, these were the things that had to be done. And, and uh, I, I asked to be the premier. I wanted to be the premier. I ran to be the premier. And I was going to make the decisions that was in the best interest of all of us. I'd suffer the consequences of it at the polls. Uh, I'd rather, I'd ra you know, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm hoping I got a life in front of me at some point, a little bit longer. I got to like the guy that I see looking back at me in the mirror. And I have to feel like I've been true to who I was and who, who and, and that's why we were doing some of the stuff we did. We've got a, a, a few more topics that we'd like to talk to you about while we have you. This is a great opportunity to get the backgrounds to some of these important things. Um, the courts have recently ruled that the legislation used to force agreements on the unions was on, unconstitutional. I'm not really sure the basis of that, but nonetheless. Do you have any regrets about having to use legislation to address the labor agreement issues in the province? I think the one that they, the one that came out was uh, the one contract with teachers. Uh, the uh, was the one that uh, they questioned. I, I you know, uh, easy for me to say if I was still the premier, I'd appeal it. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, because I, ultimately, someone's going to have to make the decision here. Who's who's left to run the province? Is it going to be the government of the day, or is it going to be the unions? You cannot. It doesn't mean. Governments, you have to have the appropriate collective bargaining. Uh, we, I would argue we negotiated in good faith. We had, when I go back to the teachers, we had three tentative agreements with the, with the executives that right. were rejected by the members. Well, at some point, government has to govern. I can't just keep doing this over and over and over and over again. And some right. people will that's what you should, that's what you have to do. Well, I'm sorry, that doesn't work. In a, in a growing economy that doesn't work for a government that has to make all kinds of other decisions. So we, we believe we met the test uh, of, of what it was to do free and collective bargaining. The, uh, uh, the judge ruled opposed to us. And one of the things he was against was we had put together $10 million on classroom conditions. Uh, and he felt that we mistreated the unions when it came to represent it on this committee. Um, uh, we originally went into this conversation with them. The original deal would be half and half, half government, half union. Um, when we ended up forcing a deal, we, we changed that. It became one person from government. It would have been one person from the union hierarchy and the rest were teachers, classroom teachers who would have been making those decisions. So we were left with that. Uh, he, the God judge at some point thought we were cutting out the union when I, he fell into the trap that the executive is the union, the members of the union, not the executive. I couldn't get a deal with the executive. The union teachers were mad at government, mad at the union. There was a disruption in classrooms. We needed a deal in order to get back some level of certainty. So I, I, I don't, uh, you know, as I said to you earlier, I wish I could have got labor peace a little easier, uh, but I fundamentally believe uh, the changes that we made in the collective bargaining process in Nova Scotia will outlast our government. And 
future governments will be grateful for it. Uh, not because they're not going to have to negotiate, not because it's not going to be heard, but they do have the ability now to be able to make some decisions uh, about the overall health of the entire perspective and breadth of what government's responsible to deliver. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying it's because I'm on this podcast, but governments have to be focused as well on how is the private sector going to, uh, how are we going to grow jobs? That's, you know, people want to, people want, people want to go to work. And the idea that everyone can work for government and get paid out of our tax dollars is a recipe for what we've had, which in my view, very stagnant uh, economy that was not in any way meeting the potential of what we have to offer. Gee, Stephen, you sound like a little bit like a conservative there for a second. <laughs> well, I, I, I would. It's funny. Lots of lots of people, uh, lots of people have suggested that. But I would I would say that if you uh, look historically in Nova Scotia, and you follow politics. Uh, it's been the Liberal premiers actually who've delivered balanced budgets. It's been the Liberal premiers who've actually tried to rein in costs of spending. Uh, from Dr. Savage to myself, and even if you go back, uh, Jerry Regan and Peter Nixon delivered seven balanced budgets before the Tories went on a spending spree. Uh, I, yes. I, would, I would argue in Nova Scotia that fisc- being a liberal is is uh, is socially progressive, but in no way means you have to give up your fiscal stability and roots because without it, who's going to pay the bill? Uh, and I think the province could be on a balanced budget today, to be honest with you, but that's just me from a distance. <laughs> I've heard you call, been called the best conservative premier we've had in a long time. So there you go. Uh, I, I wanted to just move to another, we have some more topics here. Your government was an early advocate of population growth through immigration. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, was the Ivney Commission a driving force behind this strategy for you? Uh, the, the, the whole uh, recommendations brought in by the Ivney Commission were a big part of what we were trying to accomplish. We we knew uh, that we we needed more people. Aging population, uh, they laid out a uh, you know a, a, I, I think a compelling case, uh, you know as well as the innovation commitment into the economy, which is part of that. Uh, we're all big parts of of stuff that we try to do in terms of, uh, of building uh, the economy. But yes, they, uh, and and those recommendations actually were were they weren't outlandish. They were ones that I think we all knew and and. And they became for us, uh, uh, you know, there was a, and they were uh, like, they didn't come in and tell government. Uh, I always say this about, which has been a bit different than some in other jurisdictions. So uh, some of our neighboring provinces, for example, did something very similar, but recommendations were things like sell the, sell the utilities, uh, privatize <laughs> liquor, which those are decisions that government may do. Uh, and government can make that choice and decision. If you go back and look at what the Ivany Commission talked about, it, it talked about population growth. We know we need more people. We were aging. Uh, we couldn't supply our workforce. So we needed people. That pretty straightforward question was, how do you do it? And they left the how to government. If you look at, we looked at our traditional sectors were critical and important. We need to value them uh, way more than we did in the sense of what I mean by that. I don't mean valuing the people in them. But you, if you can't, I used to tell people, you can't want to buy lobster for $5 a pound and expect me to go around the world and tell everyone we got the best lobster in the world. The two don't, the two don't add up. So we, you know, we need to value and get the maximum value out of that resource. You look at the change in the wine industry, the, all of those things. So they, you know, but they also realized that there was a generation of, of young entrepreneurs. I think this generation of Nova Scotians are way more entrepreneurial than my generation was even. Uh, but they want to work in a different environment. They don't necessarily want to come to a cubicle. They want to be in these incubation hubs. They want to they want to thrive off each other. They want to be able to you know work with academia at the same time the private sector. So the, all of these recommendations were really the big part of it, and they often left the how to government. Uh, we were held accountable to the targets they set. But they didn't overprescribe, which I think is one of the geniuses of what they did, unlike what's happened in some of the other provinces, because what's happened is if you say sell and privatize this and that, well, that becomes all people here. And that's all people's focus on. And that's what the fight is on, as opposed to 
What's our objective? What is the outcome we're looking for? The government of the day may determine they're going to sell the liquor corporation. That's that's the right of government. But but you don't need to just to get the true value out of what this commission was trying to give us were these paths to where we could grow and have choices. And that's what I think they're real. So we we listen. Uh, we would have probably every quarter our cabinet would get uh, an update from uh, Deputy Minister Miller uh, on two or three of the items uh, that we had to keep us, and we would go through them. Where are we on track? Are we not on track? What was happening? You know, in some cases, we, you know, uh, the export targets, we blew them out of the water. Uh, there were others we didn't, you know, we barely moved the needle. So we would see that. But we used that report, like I said, about every quarter. He would pick two or three of the items and then would come in. And some of them were directed at us and some were the private sector. So uh, it was an important part of our journey for sure. It's one of the few times on you have to admit that you would have seen a level of uh, enthusiasm support collect like uh, in such a broad sense uh, for an initiative uh, and I sometimes I've said this before if if any premier regardless of who it was had said we're gonna do all of this uh, people would have mm, 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 you know but we had you know you had uh, Ray Ivney you had John Bragg you had a good cross-section of people both uh, in, in industry and uh, so uh, I, it, it was it was a no-brainer for us, and it fit many of the things. That yeah, just as an aside, I actually presented data to the uh, Ivany Commission just uh, for historic purposes here, and uh, concentrated on a demographic tsunami that was going to happen, and and outlined the fact that we're going to be short. I think in the region, something like 250,000 jobs because our population was uh, not moving. So I like to think I made a small contribution to the final recommendations. And in fact, Stephen, I remember actually presenting some of that data to your caucus at one point. So maybe subliminally it was there already. <laughs> so you, you, uh, so we, listen, you know, it's a sad state, but I turned 58 last November and, uh, on the year I turned uh, two years ago was the first time in my lifetime that the province got younger. Yeah, that's true. So you don't <laughs> have to be a, you don't have to realize the pressure that's being put on services. You don't, yeah. you know, uh, and, and to be honest, if you, it, it goes back to where there's no driving of new dollars. There's nobody, there's no, we have fewer consumers. And, and quite frankly, we don't have entrepreneurs who are out there doing it or shouldn't say we don't have any, we needed more. We needed people to be taking risk, uh, and it couldn't be just government doing it. And that was where we were for 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 far too long. Hmm. So interestingly enough, Don, I actually wrote one of the appendix to the Ray Ivany report as well. So I guess you oh, and I, you and my fingerprints on that probably were the reason it was successful. Yeah, that's, um, that's probably it. <laughs> Premier, how important was the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program to help kickstart the growth that we've seen in immigration in Nova Scotia and across the region? You know what? It was it was important. I, I don't um, uh, so f you know to go back to the Harper era, uh, who was Prime Minister when I we first came in. We were we had 500 nominees a year when Manitoba was having 5,000. They bumped it to 600. Uh, through Peter uh, McKay. I don't know if they wanted to move much at all, but Peter will give Peter credit for, for ushering that through the federal government. And then very early on in the Trudeau era, we moved to 1,400 uh, and negotiated with John, uh, uh, with the uh, immigration minister at the time, uh, McCallum, that if other provinces hadn't used their nominees, we could gobble them up. Uh, so if there were some sitting on the table, and we tried to say, look at that as a region. The federal immigration one, uh, the nominee program, was uh, uh, was critical in, 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 in lots of ways. First of all, it made Atlantic Canada look at itself collectively, which is an important thing. Uh, you know, I'm not a believer in we should be, you know, we should have one government in Atlantic Canada, but I do believe we, we are much more integrated than we want to acknowledge. And we, and, and, and we need to be in many of our public policy positions. I think the borders really divides us in many ways, culturally, and some of the things that we differ. But so I, I, I give that federal program and it allowed us in particularly in some of our heavy 
labor intensive sectors, whether it was in agriculture, fish plants, uh, whatever, we allowed us to have, uh, you know, a large number of people at one time, which was a, which was a positive thing. And the fact that now it's a permanent, uh, you know, a permanent one is great because uh, we know there are parts of our economy, truck driving. I mean, you can go through the list of where we, we need uh, and we're going to need people to, uh, to fill those jobs. So last year in Nova Scotia, the combination of immigration and uh, interprovincial migration, the population grew by an unprecedented 3.6%. Uh, Premier Houston has set a goal of reaching a population of 2 million in the province by 2060. That's a long way out, but it would require an average annual growth rate of 1.8%. And we haven't seen that in Nova Scotia in a sustained way in a very, very long time. What, do you, what are your thoughts about this population target of 2 million? Uh, do you like the idea? Do you think it will provide enough workers to support economic growth? What do you think of the two million target? So when I first heard it, to be honest with you, I was a little worried, not because I don't think it's the right thing for them to do. When I look globally around the world, you look at what happened. Brexit in many ways was uh, rooted in immigration policy in, in, in the you know people coming into uh, to uh, London, rising costs. And, and much of that was being blamed on the on on you know the immigrant coming into London from around the EU. Which, if you look what went on in the United States, there was a lot of people unhappy with their lot in life, and out of that became a president who, who focused and you know ran against immigration. At the same time, Nova Scotians were embracing it in a way that uh, um, I was really proud of, uh, in a way that uh, really set us apart uh, in in a good way, and. and it was happening uh, in, in, a, in a kind of, uh, um, you know, when you look at the Syrian refugees that we brought in, it was really when I saw, I really saw a shift in attitude in Nova Scotia. Because if you go back to immigration policy, um, when it started, it was really you sponsored, I sponsored, Don sponsored, we sponsored, we'd take on. Well, Syrian refugees became a community. So a community would sponsor families. So it meant you might look after the child care where I'm I'm going to help them uh, with English as second language and Don might, you know, help them get access to health care. So it became a community and, and people celebrated that diversity happening in communities. And we've had some great success stories out of it. And we've seen some things that have been and, and we've seen it in many communities across the province. One of the things, though, we, you know, I, I worry and I was in power for part of this, uh, you know, the housing issue. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons why we have a housing issue. I worry, though, people blame it on immigration. I worry about any time can't have access to a family physician, blame it on too many people coming here. We, we know that's not the rest why, but we have to be careful and vigilant on it. So when you set a target of two million, doubling ourselves, you also need to lay out plans. Okay, what are we doing with municipalities to ensure we got water and sewer systems that are able to uh, attract? We know that we have a large number of new new Nova Scotians are in HRN. So how do we make sure that we support that? But on the flip side, one of the things that we were trying to do and wanted to do uh, was we. Do you remember the white hats, that, helmets that were uh, uh, in in uh, Afghanistan that were coming as they were coming out? Well. I asked for all 200 and I was going to put them in Sydney and I would have built English as a second language around all 200 because we could have built, because we would have then had some mass in some ways. Uh, David Dingwall is doing it now with uh, Indian students coming in and, and they've really transformed the city. So it's, 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 we need to continue to grow. We need to continue to have more people, but we need to be very thoughtful about what are the other unintended consequences that are happening that we don't have people turn against it and blame it on immigration when it's actually not immigration. It's either poor housing policy. It's a healthcare system that we haven't been transforming for the last 25 years ourselves, regardless of how many other people we have in it. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why these things are the way they are. Uh, and we need to continue to promote positive things about immigration. So I hope they reach their target of 2 million, but in the process, we need to continue to talk about the positives to make sure that the challenges we're having aren't blamed on immigration.
We have so many uh, questions and not enough time to get them all answered. But one that I'm personally curious about, we, we just uh, had on uh, Sean Kirby, who's the executive director of the Mining Association of Nova Scotia. It was very interesting. Hadn't realized uh, how much the mining industry is going to play in terms of getting us to net zero by 2050. And, and uh, there's a lot of work to be done in there. But one of the things that's interesting about Nova Scotia is that uh, you know, we've had a ban on uh, nuclear energy here since the early 90s and, and also a ban on uh, mining uranium going back to the 80s, I guess. I, 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 the question I, I wanted to ask you, because this is an important one, I think, is given the goal of net zero emissions and uh, the need to close all the coal-fired plants by 2030, is it time for Nova Scotia to reconsider this ban, especially given the development of uh, these small modular reactors that are currently happening in New Brunswick, actually? Uh, yeah, so there's two things in that question, whether or not uh, they do something, because it was actually the NDP government that actually legislated banning uh, uranium. Um, Graham Seale was the was minister at the time, so 2010 or so, 910. Uh, there was always a bit of a, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't an actual legislation, it was put in. I don't know if the government, if there is a government that uh, will shift uh, that. Um, I don't know. I do think we need to have a conversation about, uh, quite frankly, nuclear power. Uh, the irony of it is where I live in the valley, which is just across the Bay of Fundy from, uh, if something were to go wrong in New Brunswick, it's probably where I live is going to get hit harder than anyone. And we bur we're burning nuclear power today. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we just we move energy back and forth so we you know it's people are talking about russia having uh you know nuclear weapons uh but the bomb in the hell out of ukraine which is full of nuclear power plants uh, you, you know this idea that we're gonna have to we're gonna be an island into ourselves and set aside from not accessing nuclear power i just don't i i think governments are gonna have to adapt to it in order to meet their environmental goals they can't have it both ways they can't be able to say uh, or otherwise you and I are never going to be able to afford it. Uh, and that's the thing that uh, this, uh, you know, the whole issue of transitioning from, uh, from coal to, you know, much more greener and, and whether, whether we get the uranium from here or not uh, is another story, but I think we're going to have to come to the time uh, around nuclear power, particularly, you know what, and, and kudos to New Brunswick, uh, I believe it's Manitoba or Saskatchewan around these small nuclear uh, reactor options, which is uh, that may provide a huge opportunity for us as a as a neighboring economy uh, to start being able to use uh, and and generate nuclear power here in Nova Scotia. Just a quick follow up on that: um, the current government uh, recently interfered with the regular regulatory process to set power rates in Nova Scotia and froze the rates. Uh, obviously, uh, energy and power rates is very, very politically uh, a powerful issue in Nova Scotia across Atlantic Canada. What was your opinion of that decision, and what do you think the impact will be moving forward? Well, I think it's a very dangerous decision, uh, and one that I, I worry will spread out way beyond power, and it will be both the investment climate and the province. It's government's role, so it was when I was there and before me, to set public policy. It's then up to the utility or all of Nova Scotians to fit inside that policy. And we have an independent regulator outside of government to be able to respond to that. Capital needs a level of certainty. And the certainty was the regulator. And that uh, they knew when they were borrowing, when NSP or Mara was borrowing money, there was a certainty that this was not going to end up on the desk or be influenced by uh, a government in the center of a rate hearing. Well, that's all gone out the window now. We've now sent a message out, in my view, that says uh, if we can't stand the heat, doesn't matter, we're going to intervene. It's akin to, quite frankly, putting your hand in the justice system because you don't like a verdict. That's the independence of the judiciary is there for a reason. So political people like me don't get to deliver justice. The regulator is there for a reason. So people like me who, who you know, who or, or the current government who can't stand the fact that uh, there's going to be an adjustment in power, they've overstepped, in my view. And I think this uh, will truly undermine. I'm curious what the ruling will be from the regulator when they come back with it. But I, it just sends the wrong message to the private sector. We need, quite frankly, we need more corporations in Nova Scotia than, than less. 
we need the you know the financial community to recognize this is a good place to invest. We're growing population. We got a private sector that's growing. We got a massive group of young people that are here wanting to drive innovation, uh, and they need certainty. Uh, and uh, even though the regulator adjusts things, they provide certainty. Uh, they make sure the re- they make sure the utility doesn't abuse us as its customer, and uh, they make sure that the appropriate stuff is there. Government has every right to lay out legislation about I want green. I want a green need grid. I want to. I'm going to do things that whether I agree with some of the stuff is irrelevant. But they have the right to be able to talk about solar. They have the right to be able to talk about wind. And that's the policy, and the company will fit in around that. But when you overstep into the regulator, it's, a, it's, in my view, a terrible signal out into the broader investment community for the province of Nova Scotia. Well, on that really interesting topic, we're going we're gonna to conclude, Stephen, by thanking you for joining us on the Insights Podcast yeah, and really providing. Listen, I appreciate that, Don, but I, I will end on this. If you go back in 2013, you would have remembered. I got elected on, on, on power rates. Yes, you, you did. I ran, I ran an ad. Yes, I, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I never interfered with the regulator. I yes. have public policy, and I, you have the right to pull levers of public policy, which is all within the rights of government. But it, 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 when you're the premier, you have to you have to get away from being an opposition leader, and you have to move ahead to this signal of what happens in uh, overstepping. I don't think it. I don't think that decision. Uh, uh, can and, and people think it's because it's the uh, Nova Scotia Power. Uh, I, I, Nova Scotia Power is one entity in the province that requires large sums of capital, <laughs> and, uh, and and we need our companies, and we need our, our to be able to go out into the marketplace with certainty. So I, I didn't want to sound hypocritical when I was talking about because I I did run on on power rates. Uh, we moved and and. and quite frankly, work with both the utility uh, uh, and to be able to deliver a greener uh, a grid at the same time controlling the level of costs. Nothing stays frozen. Somebody, when the, there's eventually a thaw. Somebody's, the thaw, thaw has to happen. So uh, we need to be cautious about that. It's simply because it's it's fair game to pick on the, uh, the utility because no one likes getting their power bill. But uh, I think there's a broader thing here, which is certainty for capital. Sorry, yeah, around. thanks. No, thanks for uh, adding that. That's actually a, a, a good uh, a good way to c- conclude that segment. And again, we appreciate you uh, joining us on the Insights Podcast and really giving us a firsthand account of your time as Premier of uh, Nova Scotia. It, it's been very enjoyable. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.